millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's episode is part two with University of Chicago Professor Paul Post. Previously, we talked about alliances and proxy war, and we started to get into a discussion on uh, Russia-Ukraine. So we'll continue that conversation here. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you. All right, so last uh, last couple of th- questions here on Russia Ukraine then. So what's the what is your read on the status of the conflict? A lot of folks are saying it's stalemated to include, you know, back in what was it December uh 2023 uh, General Zaluzhny and I apologize for butchering the pronunciation of that name, but you know, he came out and basically said it's a, it's a stalemate and they're stuck in this war of attrition with Russia and they're not going to overcome it unless they get some some additional help. You know, and then other folks have come out, like Jack Watling wrote uh, a couple a week or two ago that it's not a stalemate and that Ukraine can prevent, I, I thought the wording was interesting, can prevent Russia from winning. He didn't say Ukraine can win, but he said can prevent Russia from winning in 2024. And so there's just this divergence of of assessments and thoughts on the whole thing. And so I'm curious on what, what your read of uh, the, the conflict currently is, and then how do you think it might end? And how long do you think it might take for that end to come about? So I'm someone that has thought since pretty close to the beginning that we were looking at a long-term war. Um, uh-huh. I think you know, we referred to my social media feed. You can find where I have um, a thread, one of my threads that got quite a bit of attention where I said you, we might have to use as a model the Iran-Iraq war. We could potentially be looking at a war like that, and I think that there could be some lessons for it. And, of course, for listeners who just need their memory, need to have a refresh on that, the Iran-Iraq war lasted eight years, resulted in over a million battlefield casualties, 
And moreover, and this is really kind of the heart of the comparison, at the end of it, there wasn't really much accomplished by either side. And that is really, I think, many things that made the comparison disturbing to people was that, you know, it, it could be. Will the war last eight years? I don't think the war is going to last eight years. Of course, it depends on when you're getting it. But if we talk about from the major beginning of Russians, uh, Russia's invasion in February 2022, I don't think we're looking at eight years from that point. But could we be looking at another year, another two years, another three years? Not surprising at all. And moreover, as that continues to grind on, you're going to create more potential for this for casualties. For deaths. Now, could it get to the level of the Iran-Iraq war? Well, again, that was an eight-year war, so a million battlefield deaths. And again, that's even just an estimate. We don't have a completely sound number on that. But if you look at, of course, the rates that were happening early on in the war. It was wild. They, yeah, they've, you know, they've, they've stabilized because obviously the war mm-hmm. was much more mobile then. And since it's become more static, it, you know, the the... the rates of wounded to kill have kind of gone back to more of a contemporary normal level. But nevertheless, it's still at a much higher level than a lot of other conflicts have been in the past, say, 20 years, 30 years. And so as a result, there is that potential that it could reach quite high levels, potentially Iran-Iraq levels. But I just say that to say that since the beginning, I've had that concern that it would stabilize in this way. And my reasons for that were twofold. Number one, the Russian way of warfare, which is that Russia tends to fight in these attritional wars. It tends to be what they go for is basically we're just going to wear you down and they have the capacity to do that. They have the willingness to do that. And we, you know, we could talk about why is that? What is it about their economy? What is it about their governance structure? Because it's obviously a political decision to fight a war that way. But Russia has a long track record. You can go back way in history to track, to see that track record, but even just more recent history, you can see where Russia has kind of a military model that's based on attrition and also based on punishment. Right. It's not necessarily based on precision weaponry usage and trying to minimize casualties. That's not the Russian way of warfare. At the same time, Ukraine, the key thing for me was that Ukraine is going to receive the assistance that they've been receiving. And that's going to allow Ukraine to do exactly what they've done, which is be able to take Russia's best shot, be able to hold on and then actually be able to start counterpunching. But... The key is, is they're not going to necessarily get the weaponry and they'd also don't have the manpower to be able to counterpunch in such a way that they could just simply push the Russian military back off of their territory. And those two, those two things combined to me are a recipe for an attritional war. Yep. That also points to how could this break down? Like what could lead to a change? What could lead to this war actually ending sooner? Well, first of all, I think we're in a situation where Russia can't win, but they don't have to lose. Yeah, right? So that's absolutely. the way I would say, it. you know, it's not Russia's not going to just march in and take over Kiev, but they also don't have to lose the territory of the pet. They just have to hold on to it. And I remember I pointed this out on Twitter back in 2022. And this was one time where I got some flack because people didn't like I was saying this. But I yeah. said, you know, Russia can actually be counted as the winner. Russia can win. 
And the reason why is because of how IR scholars and conflict scholars actually study winning in conflict is basically, do you gain territory? Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's a Pyrrhic victory. It doesn't matter if you've incurred huge losses. If you gain territory, you technically win. And Russia is still in a position to at least accomplish that. But Ukraine is in a position where they can't push Russia out, but they also don't have to allow Russia to gain any more. And so that's really the key for, again, thinking about why this is a stalemate and also thinking about what could be going into the future. What I'm specifically referring to is how long will Ukraine continue to get assistance? And that's really the big question. And that's where we then start going into things like looking at U.S. domestic politics yep. and thinking about that situation. I, you know, I don't have access to Putin's mind, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I've said this since last year that Putin is basically saying, I don't necessarily have the resources to fight a long, long-term war, but I have enough resources to hold out that if, depending on what happens with the next election, there might be some people in office who would be more inclined to start pushing Ukraine to negotiate, and I just have yeah. to hold out for that. And so I think that that might be where things could start to change is, you know, for example, if Donald Trump were to become president in 2025, would he take the position of, you know what, we got to start to end this thing? Right. And I don't know if he would necessarily just cut off Ukraine cold turkey, but I could see where he would push for negotiations. Right. And I think, yeah. or at least I think that's what Putin is expecting to see yeah. what happens. Yeah. There's uh, several things on that that I, I want to build upon. Um, so the first is the way of war um, that you mentioned. And I think that this is something that often gets overlooked because in the West, in the U.S. in particular, especially in military circles, we have this, we're blinded by a couple different biases, right? So the first is this maneuver warfare bias that somehow inherently that is a better way of fighting. But as you mentioned, when the war was mobile, right, which is a key component of maneuver warfare, the casualties are astronomical, like unseen in decades level casualties. Yet now that the war is static, the number of casualties has dropped significantly, specifically the killed uh, killed in action, right? And so there's that dynamic. The other dynamic is the precision um, strike um, phenomenon that you mentioned as well. And I think that this is another one of those dog whistles where we, we say precision strike and then we automatically assume, oh, it's better and it's going to achieve and generate greater, uh, greater effect and greater meaning gets us closer to our objective. But that's just not true, you know? And it's also not proven that precision strike is inherently any less deadly or destructive than anything else. It's just more accurate, you know? And so while you may be hitting things more accurately, by virtue of something still exploding, it's still creating damage, death, and destruction. And so those, I think, are two things when we looked at the uh, this conflict as it got going that I think we over um, overlooked. And that's that, I think, is a Western primarily American-driven bias that gets in the way of us clearly understanding how wars are going to be fought and how they unfold, right? So then we're, you know, you're surprised, well, not you, but the, you know, we are surprised when this war of attrition rolls around. We're like, oh my God, what's going on here? Well, you know, if you just understand that, like, that's, I would say that's more the, the actual state of being in war than, than not. And uh, so there's that, but then also the competing strategies, right? So Russia wants to fight attritionally, which there's nothing wrong with. It's not inherently worse or anything. It's, uh, it's actually very well in line with their 
uh, big picture strategy, right? Their means and resources all contribute to that. And that's something that they can do. And they're, they're you know, willing to do that. So you have that, but then you have the, the Ukraine approach that you mentioned that's sponsored in large part by the U.S. and Western partners providing all these resources, right? Long range strike, precision strike, everything was strike. And so if Russia wants to fight attritionally and we want them to use the strike stuff, that in itself is fueling a war of attrition, right? You've got these two competing strategies which look different, um, and they are different to a degree, right? But they they automatically contribute to this this dynamic, right? And so, again, it's one of those things that I, I find it somewhat comical sometimes when we sit back and we're like, why has this become a war of attrition? You know, And it's like, well, you've got these diametrically opposed uh, ways of war, that actually feed on when they feed on each other that that's what they create and it doesn't take a lot of analysis to figure this out the other thing i think that um commenting off of uh, something you said we talk about uh russia and its goals and its end states uh and winning and you know you talk about taking territory i also think that when we talk about winning and victory Sometimes we get too academic when we think about it, um, and we also forget that it's it's uh, inherently fundamental to the to the side who's engaged in the conflict, right? So just because they've won in their mind, not not even their mind, they've accomplished their objectives, but that doesn't mesh with the way that you view winning. That doesn't mean they didn't win, right? Right. And so it's all relative, and it's relative to your own goals and your own means. And so for Russia's case, and I, I say all this to get to to my thoughts on where things are. So I I think that you know I never thought that Russia was actually trying to annex the entirety of Ukraine. I thought that it was you know Kiev, trace the Dnieper down to the Black Sea, everything east of that. That's what I thought was going on. They didn't have sufficient force to take the whole country. They weren't aligned to take the whole country, right? They would have had to push way further to the west in Belarus and launch that way. Um, and so from the get-go, I never thought that that was where they were going. But I do think that they were trying to take that whole, like, two-thirds of the country um, uh, east all the way back to the border. And they didn't, they didn't get that, obviously. Um, but I think that what, they've try, what they're playing for now, so I think once they realize that they were unable to do that, you know, there's a sliding scale of success. And so Russia, in, in my assessment, is on what I would call their minimally acceptable outcome. So they've got the Donbass, you know, they've got the land bridge to Crimea, they've got Crimea. And really, if you go back to 2014, 2015, that's what they were trying to take then. They were just far less successful because they were operating through proxies and their proxies didn't have sufficient capacity to accomplish all those goals. And so they put in the force that could get that. So what I think they're doing, uh, similar to, to the point that you were making, is I think that they're I think right now what they're doing is probably trying to incrementally carve out a little bit more than what they want to get a buffer so that when negotiations do roll around, they can say, OK, we'll give you this back. Yeah. But we're still keeping the Donbass, you know, the Lambers of Crimea and Crimea because they're never I think Crimea is like the red line where they will say yes. all bets are off uh, and things will get a lot worse. Now, on the other side of that, in my assessment, I think that uh, Ukraine doesn't possess the capacity in terms of manpower to go on the offensive to retake any of that territory. They may have the all the bombs, missiles, rockets, long range fryers, drones, intelligence to support doing that. But again, it goes back to, I think when we, when we think and talk about land warfare, you also have to understand like the game of risk. I think the game of risk is really instructive. 
And when you play Risk, you know, when you go into Irkutsk, you have to attack with an army, but then you have to leave an army in the territory you conquered and move armies forward, right? And you have to do that as you want to take territory. And so by virtue of doing that, you're also diffusing your force, right? And so as you diffuse your force, you have far less punching power, but also far less holding power. And so um, if Ukraine's already shorthanded and, you know, their counteroffensive failed um, this past summer, you know, they certainly don't have the ability to go on the offensive and start retaking all that territory. And so my, my personal thought, and I think it's similar to what you were laying out there too, is that uh, the goose may be cooked, uh, for better or worse, you know, and, um, you know, Putin, I think is probably playing for time. They may be nibbling out at the edges to get some more land so that when it does come time to negotiate, they can say, Oh, here you go. I'm a gracious, you know, a gracious conqueror. We'll give you this back, but I'm keeping this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And so I, I think it's a, it's just an interesting uh, situation uh, that's unfolded, and it's unfortunate, you know, in, in, in large regard because it's uh, it's been a devastating conflict. Extremely so, yeah, no, extremely so. And, and it's interesting, you know. There's a few elements just to elaborate, just yeah. real quickly on a few things you shared there. Um, I have two thoughts. First of all, like thinking about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, and I, I, I tweeted about this a little bit, and, you know, this was one that also, you know, some people question my take on it, but I think it also depends on how we're defining things. So I didn't view the counteroffensive as a full-on failure. Some people said, oh, it's a complete failure. Um, I viewed it as, and I had said this from early on the counteroffensive, that a key goal of it was never to... I mean, some people, I think, went into it expecting to see what happened in the fall or in September of 2022, yeah. but at scale. Yeah. I think they were expecting to see the Russian military melt and they're going to push through and this is going to be rapid fire. And I was like, that's not going to happen. That, that, that should not be the expectation going in. To me, my view was always that the, expe the expectation was they want to show a continued willingness and yep. ability to take the fight to the Russians for the purpose of securing continued flow of aid for the long-term war. And in that sense, I think that they, I think the counteroffensive achieved some things. I think it illustrated, yes, very much a willingness to continue fighting Russia. Yeah. They made some slow incremental gains, but it also illustrated the limits. It, it provided, if you will, ammunition 
Mm-hmm. for Zelensky, for others to be able to say, look, we need more. This is why we need more. We were able to take the fight to the Russians, but we couldn't accomplish because you're not giving us everything that we need. So I think from a political standpoint, I actually think it achieved quite a few of the goals. But yeah. again, I think a lot of people looked at it as a failure because they had in their mind, and I, and I don't even think mine, I think some people even said explicitly, oh, this is going to yeah. be September 2022, but at scale. It's like, ah, that's not, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. Um, so I think that that's, but it still points to the fact that this is a long-term war, or at least that's what you have to do for long-term war. You have to take these actions to secure that flow. And then it takes us back to this idea of, is that going to continue? Are negotiations going to come in? Will Ukraine's backers start pushing for the negotiations? Yeah. You know, there is one wild card on this and, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to share my crazy theory on this. So and I don't think it's that crazy, but a lot of people, like I said, I think Putin is banking on Donald Trump will win the election. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's going to come in right away and say, that's it. We're pulling out. We're going to force Ukraine to negotiate and we're done. And I think that's a, that's a plausible scenario. I think there's reasons to think that the wild card is that Trump gets in his mind because people tell him you're the only one who can stand up to Putin. The Biden couldn't get it done. Biden couldn't get it done. You can get it done because you know Putin. You can stand up to him. We need you to stand up to him. And he might latch on to that, be like, I can stand up to him. We're going to give them even more. We're going to take this to him. So I, I, I mean, it's just like, there's, it's, I think it's unclear. First of all, I mean, yeah. first of all, I think it's unclear, obviously, if Donald Trump will win the presidency. Yeah. But even if he does... I still think it's unclear exactly what happens and what takes place. Um, but I think that still in Putin's expectation, it's that he's hoping a Trump wins and then that leads to a cutting back of the support to Ukraine. That's what I think the realistic expectation that he has is. But I just want to put that out there to say that there's there, there are many scenarios where this could still go. Yeah, I think that that would be an interesting thing to do would be to be like wire diagram the potential scenarios and not yeah. throw anything off the table because it, it, it seems too outlandish. And then just see how, you know, how the how the how the thing actually unfolds as we get get down into that point. Uh, all right. So last thing I want to talk to you about here, uh, I thought that this was a really good article you published in the Atlantic recently. It's called not a world war, but a world at war. And so, um, just the last couple, couple discussion points here. What do you mean by that? And, um, what do you think potentially some of the detractors might say as a pushback on that? Um, because there, there are certainly people that are out there saying that we, there is a world war going on. It's just, not necessarily coalesced into a World War II-ish type scenario. Yeah, this is this. I love how you phrase that question, and and so I think there's several points that I can bring up here. The first one is I think even my detractors, as you pointed out, we would all agree. Yes, we're not at like a World War II type scenario. We're, we're not witnessing that. And what do we mean by that? We mean sustained high intensity conflict between directly between major powers, right? That's, we're not witnessing that. And I think all those components to it are important, right? You could have some limited conflict, you have short term, um, but sustained direct uh, fighting and high intensity fighting between major powers, we're not witnessing that. And I think everybody agrees that we're not witnessing that. 
And that does lead to a debate of, is that necessary to have something be classified as a world war, right? And, and, you could, and, and indeed, I think there are arguments to say that um, not necessarily. You don't have to have that. Just because we have World War II in our mind, World War II and World War I are such outliers when it comes mm-hmm. to the study of warfare that um, there's a, a, a colleague of mine, Colin Hendricks, he, he wrote this piece several years ago for the blog Political Violence at a Glance, where he wrote about how um, World War I and World War II are the, what, charismatic megafauna of war studies, right? And the <laughs> idea behind this was, and I think it's based on, um, I believe his his partner is a biologist or what have you, but basically a lot of people want to, or a zoologist, a lot of people want to study zoology because they see pandas and they say, oh, pandas are great. I want to understand pandas so forth. And then you say, that's great, but you know what? Most species are not like pandas, right? You know, <laughs> so, so I'm glad the panda made you interested in this, yeah. but when you start studying, you realize yeah. it's not like this. And World War II, World War One are the similar ideas that that might be what captures attention. There's whole, like, there's tons of documentaries. People read about it, books. And that's great. But when you start studying warfare, you realize most wars do not look like World War One, World War Two. Yep. And could you say the same thing about do, does can you be in a world war without being in a World War One, World War Two scenario? I think you can, but you still want to have that notion of. But I think by and large, people have that notion of direct fighting. And I think at the extreme, people think that World War Three literally means the use of nuclear weapons. Right. I think that's what people really think when they say World War Three. But what I was getting at with this piece is saying that we're not in a scenario of direct, sustained, high-intensity fighting between major powers. And we may not be in a scenario with one unified war or wars that are directly connected strategically, like in the case of World War II, if you wanted to argue that the European theater, the Pacific theater, at least connected, even if they're separate wars. But we are in a situation where, number one, According to the data, and I cite specifically the data from the Uppsala Conflict Data Project out of Uppsala University, UCDP, that we are currently witnessing the most conflicts and the most wars in the world since not just the end of the Cold War, but since the end of World War II. And that's the first point to this, is that the world is witnessing the most conflicts that we've seen since that time. And that really challenges claims about how, you know, all oh, it was the long peace and the world the war is on its way out. And we're not witnessing conflict of war anymore. And it's like, no, we're in a time where we're witnessing more conflict than we have since World War II. Um, and so that's like go ahead. invalidating a lot of international relations theories, right? Economic yeah. peace theory, democratic peace theory. It's invalidating yeah. a lot of the claims, especially the notion of like the long peace or, you know, a yep. claim that became very popular about a decade ago with Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And he talked about how, you know, war is going on the decline and, you know, it's going on the way out. And the current world is very much like raising questions about that, right? (laughs) Certainly is. And now the key is, is that these wars aren't necessarily all at the level of a World War I, World War II. But again, you don't want to be deceived by World War I, World War II. One of the things that I point out, I actually do this with my students, graduate students as well as undergrads, is we look at the data that we have on war over the past 200 plus years. And what you see is there are these two enormous outliers in the early to middle part of the 20th century. But the 80 years prior to 1914, in the 80 years after 1945, 
look awfully similar to each other. And in fact, there's even more deaths and wars in the 80 years after 1945 than there were in the 80 years before 1914. Hmm. So that really leads you to say, okay, yes, we're not as conflictual as we were in 1945, but that should not be our baseline, right? That should not be the baseline at all. But that's the idea of we're not in a world war, but we are in a world at war because we're at this heightened level of conflict that we haven't seen in 80 years. And then, of course, the other thing that the piece goes into is, well, why is that, right? You know, there could be all sorts of explanations for it. You know, to what extent are these connected? And, of course, we can, you know, we can go into, you know, as much of these as you wish in terms of talking about these different causes. But, you know, they range everything from changes in the international system in terms of the rise of what we call multipolarity, you know, the, the, the decline of people refer to as Pax Americana or, you know, the U.S. kind of losing this role or ability to kind of police the world to even just, could it just be pure chance, right? Is it just, we had a bad draw. 2023 was just bad luck, right? And and we had a lot of conflict. I like how you integrated Nassim Taleb in that part. Yes, you know, the idea of don't be fooled by randomness, right? You know, that it could just be those randomness and we shouldn't look for, systematic explanations. Now, as I pointed out recently um, in some, you know, I pointed out in the, in the piece, but also in other um, areas where I've been, opportunities I've had to talk about this, the full by randomness doesn't mean that the wars are random, but what yeah. it means is that each one of these wars has their own explanations and they're not mm-hmm. systematically connected by something like the you know decline of the United States or the rise of multipolarity, you know a lot of these are frozen conflicts. They have yep. that have just suddenly flared up again, and any frozen conflict has the ability to flare up at any time. And it could just be the randomness is that they just happen to flare up all in 2023, right? That's that's the idea of the randomness. So it's not just that oh my gosh I can't explain war I can't understand it. It's just that each individual one of these has their own systematic explanation, but they don't all have a unified explanation. That's the idea of that it could just be that coincidence type explanation. All right. So coincidence explanation, that's, I guess, how we're going to wrap up here. Um, this uh, this conversation today, Paul, has been terrific. And uh, I'd like to talk to you again in the future at some point. Um, so I'll keep reading more of your books so I can come back and pepper you with uh, questions about the books. And I think Maybe do another uh, like Russia Ukraine update, or perhaps even talk about Israel uh, Hamas at some point in the future as well too. I, I know we didn't talk about that at all, but um, again, like I said, it, I said we'd be hard pressed to cover everything in thirty minutes, and we definitely didn't do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, there's so much we could talk about, so much more to talk about. So I'd love to be able to come back on at another time. All right. Well, we'll make that happen. Uh, Thank you very much for your time, and I hope you're staying warm up there in Chicago. Thank you.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.